everybody, this is Michael Shields. And before we get rolling, I want to tell you about our promotion running through the Osiris Network, who, across the margin of the podcast, is a proud member of the Osiris Media Group that uh, I stand by full-heartedly. It's with uh, Harry's Razors, who know that now is not the time to overpay for razors at the drugstore. Harry's knows that sometimes it's better to stay inside, obviously. That's why they ship directly to you, so you can experience the quality of a Harry's shave in just a few days from the convenience of your own home. Join the 10 million who have tried Harry's. Claim your special trial offer by going to harrys.com backslash margin. That's just margin, cross margin, M-A-R-G-I-N-Y, Harry's. Harry's is a return to that essential quality, durable blades at a fair price, just $2 a blade, which is pretty ridiculous, really. They've uh, cut out the middleman. Manufacturing blades in their German blade factory that's been honing precision blades for a century, which means you get incredibly high quality blades at factory direct prices. Harry's is super convenient. Blade refills are delivered directly to your door on your schedule with or without a subscription, and you can feel good about your purchase. 100% quality guarantee. If you don't love your shave, let them know and they'll give you a full refund. And just as good as that, 1% of proceeds are set aside for nonprofit organizations devoted to helping provide access to better health care for men and veterans, which is awesome. So uh, listeners to, to this show can redeem their Harry's trial set at harrys.com backslash margin. You'll get a weighted ergonomic handle for a firm grip. The handle is awesome. I've never had a razor that had something like that. I love it. Five-blade razor with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade. Rich lathering shave gel with aloe to keep your skin hydrated. It's awesome. Smells so good. And a travel blade cover to keep your razor dry and easy to grab on the go. Go to harrys.com backslash margin to start shaving better today. Now, let's get into it. Welcome to Across the Margin, the podcast. I'm your host, Michael Shields, and um, I'm really, really excited about this episode today. It's one that is very important to me personally and um, politically to all of us, as today we're going to explore the role the Electoral College has on electing a president. Um, I can truly remember the exact moment I came to fully understand the Electoral College as a I was a teenager, and I was watching an interview with Dr. Cornell West, who laid the truth out plainly uh, about the college. My mind was really blown, and and I came to understand just the the ins and outs, and 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 just that it was it it, it could be looked at as a, as a pretty serious problem to uh, democracy. It was a it was a moment where innocence was lost in a way, where uh, where uh, a belief I had uh, about America as a democracy was. Torn down, and I've pretty much been obsessed with uh, discussing the Electoral College ever since, and, and you know, trying to spread the word 
about what is going on. Because truly, wouldn't it be thrilling to go to the polls on election day, regardless of what state you live in, knowing your vote and voice will count just as much as everyone else's. In this episode, we're going to examine the role the Electoral College plays in elections through an interview with Supreme Court journalist and New York Times editorial board member Jesse Wegman, who recently penned the insightful and important book, Let the People Pick the President. In this thoroughly researched and engaging call to arms, Wegman makes a powerful case for abolishing the antiquated and anti-democratic Electoral College. In Let the People Pick the President, he shows how we can, at long last, make every vote in the United States count and restore belief in our democratic system. To this day, millions of voters and even members of Congress misunderstand how the Electoral College works. And twice in the last five elections, the Electoral College has overridden the popular vote, calling the integrity of the entire system into question and creating a false picture of a country divided into bright red and blue blocks. Throughout this episode, Jesse and I delve into how the Electoral College functions, the way in which it was conceived by the Founding Fathers, the many myths associated with its workings, how the popular vote could eventually be implemented in choosing a president, hint, the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact is involved, and um, ultimately, we picture what the country would look like in a world where the final obstacle remaining from the imperfections and built-in inequalities of the nation's founding was eradicated for good. Jesse is an absolute wealth of knowledge in this subject. And uh, because of that, I'm incredibly grateful to have him on the show um, to enlighten us and help unpack the ins and outs of the college. I've had a, a, a huge problem with the Electoral College for some time. And Jesse's book, uh, it arms you with the facts to cite and stories to tell the next time you find yourself in a debate over how we pick the president, whatever your politics are, and wherever you live. His book is awesome. You should grab it. We talk a lot about what's uh, in it in this um, conversation, um, but still, there's so much more um, once you dig into that thing. It just it blew my mind, and uh, I'm so excited to share with you right now this interview with the author of Let the People Pick the President, Jesse Wegman. Thank you again for um, coming on, and uh, thank you for this book. There's uh, since I first um, heard about the Electoral College and learned about it, I was always very flabbergasted. And uh, this is kind of like the manual to speak to people about it and to learn everything about it. So thanks. You're welcome. I'm I'm glad it served that purpose. Um, so I kind of want to make sure everyone's on the same page, and people who are very politically astute, um, you know, probably know the answer to the question I want to ask here, but also I want everyone to kind of be able to get their head around some of these ideas. But so just to kind of get going, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit on how the electoral electoral college functions, how, how you know, kind of what, how does it work in, uh, in these days? Sure. So I think this, there's some pretty basic things about the way we elect our president that a lot of Americans may either not know at all or not understand. Uh, and the first one is that we don't elect our president directly. Uh, we do it through a system of electors who are people chosen in each of the states um, according to the number of congressional members and senators that each state has. So uh, a state like California, 
which has uh, 53 members of the House of Representatives and two senators, gets 55 electors. Mm. That's the case across all the states. They all get the number of electors equal to their representation in Congress. And after the public votes in November, the vote that we think of as the presidential election, about six weeks after that is the real presidential election. And that's when the electors cast their ballots for president and vice president. And that's what decides who the president is. Whoever wins a majority of electors in the country, which is 270, becomes president. Now, that's pretty much all that the Constitution says. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, all of the things we know about the Electoral College and how it works are actually uh, the function of state laws and state practices, some that have been going on for hundreds of years, uh, but they have no no basis in the Constitution. The the framers did not tell the states how to award their electors, how to choose them in the first place. That's all up to the states. So that's something I think that's really important for people to know is they think that, you know, even if they know that they're voting for electors rather than for the president of the United States, Mm -hmm. uh, they don't even have that right in the Constitution. It's purely a decision of their state lawmakers to either give them the right to vote directly for their electors or not to include them at all. At the beginning of the country, many states just chose their electors themselves. The state lawmakers did without any involvement from the voters at all. So that's really, uh, I think, the the most basic way to put it is that we have this sort of intermediary uh, system by which the people's vote is translated you know, very imperfectly in in many people's eyes, including mm-hmm. mine, My into guess. the electors' vote for the president. It's really it's it's kind of unbelievable. I think uh, I think there's a misconception, and and people think uh, their vote can matter more more than it does, which which is I find very very distressing. You did um, you know, I, I want to get into the states' rights more and how you know the winner take all and and just how the states make the, a lot of these decisions. But I think um, something that your book starts on is just how it was all conceived and. The Electoral College was conceived early on, and and some people can really look at it, and you touch on this fully, and is that the Founding Fathers um, had uh, could have been looked at as having a distrust of, a, of like, a true democracy. Right. Well, you know, when the framers met in Philadelphia in 1787 to, to design what ended up being our Constitution— mm-hmm. um, you know, this was their second effort to create a, a country, right? They had already done this some, several years earlier with what were called the Articles of Con- Confederation. And we might call that Constitution 1.0. Mm-hmm. And that system uh, was very clearly deficient. It was not working because there was no national government to speak of. It was really more of like a treaty among states. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was no there was no mechanism to resolve disputes among states. There was no president. Uh, and, uh, you know, Congress, there was a Continental Congress, but it was also sort of hamstrung in a lot of ways. It didn't have the money that it needed to do basic, to, to carry out its basic tasks. Um, and so when they, when they met in Philadelphia, they had to deal with these problems. And one of the biggest ones of all was, you know, we, we need to have a president. That was clear. How do we choose that person? Mm. And that was one of the hardest questions they asked at the convention. They battled over it for months from the very beginning of the convention to the very end. They kept coming back to it. They kept not resolving it. A lot of people today think, oh, the, the Electoral College is a brilliant component of the framers' wise design of our system. In fact, they cobbled it together in the last days of the convention in a side room of the hall 
three or four of the delegates sitting in there basically scratching out uh, a compromise that everyone could agree to, not because it was perfect, but because they needed to get this document done Mm -hmm. after four months and they needed to get it out to the states to be ratified and to take effect. So they were really rushing at the end. James Madison admits this openly. He says, basically, we were rushing. (laughs) So, you know, the system that they designed, which is uh, a version of the system that we're talking about, it's actually not the same, quite the same that we use today. Mm was a, a way to get uh, everybody on board, uh, knowing that George Washington was virtually certain to become president no matter what method was used. Mm-hmm. So that's another thing I think that's important to keep in mind is the framers weren't thinking, what are they going to be doing in 2020? They were just thinking, how do we get through the next few years? <laughs> you know, yeah. And they knew that George Washington was going to be chosen as he was in the first two elections. After that, the, the first election that was held without George Washington on the ticket, which is 1796, mm-hmm. this is less than 10 years after the ratification of the Constitution, the Electoral College stops working the way the founders thought it would. The way I think that a lot of us learned in high school that the Electoral College works is it's this supposedly you know, deliberative body of well-educated men and now women who uh, you know can 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 think for themselves and choose the best leader for the country. That is never how the electoral college has worked. Starting in 1796, when it was you know John Adams uh, for the, the Federalists and uh, Thomas Jefferson for the Democratic Republicans, it became a very partisan system. And it was the electors who you thought were going to be these independent actors and decide things for themselves actually were just party hacks. They basically said, I'm voting for my man no matter what. And that's how it's been ever since. So when we think about what were the framers trying to do when they made an electoral college, you have to remember the the electoral college that they designed has not operated as they designed it to uh, since basically 1796. Yeah, something I was um, you touched on a lot that that really affected me in the book. How you know what we talk, what we're taught in school isn't really the case. I mean, they built it up that this was really something special, and then also how um, you know they rushed it along. One of the one of the things you you touch on is um, you know why did they agree to this? And and you're like because they had to finish the Constitution, which is wild. But um, when I picked up your book, one thing I really wanted to know was who are these electors and and. You know, I guess the hope was that the the most um, enlightened and respected citizens would be chosen. But then you read uh, early on um, that it's a motley cast of characters made up of former politician, party insiders and random activists who happen to know someone powerful. So these these aren't necessarily best of the best making these decisions. These are these are people who connected directly to the parties. That's the case, right? Exactly. I mean, I opened my book with the story of Michael Baca, mm-hmm. uh, who was a Democratic elector in Colorado in 2016. Uh, he, at the time, was a 24-year-old uh, former Marine who was uh, a driver for Uber and Lyft, you know, in 2016. Yep. Uh, he was not He was not someone that I think most of us would think, oh, that's the man I want choosing mm-hmm. my president mm-hmm. for me. He knew this himself. He didn't think of himself as some special uh, figure in American politics. He just... Uh, he got he, he was actually uh, uh, working for Bernie Sanders in 2016, mm-hmm. and then after uh, Hillary Clinton became the nominee, the party uh, a local party leader reached out to him and said, "Are you interested in being a Democratic elector?" Um, but Michael Baca is a perfect example of the kind of person who might be an elector. Uh, uh, Bill Clinton was an elector in uh, New York in 2016, mm-hmm. so um, it can it can. Re- run the range of, uh, you know, Bill Clinton is someone I think most people would think is probably qualified to, to think about who could be president. Um, but, uh, you know, 
the, the point is that the, the college doesn't operate in that way that, that people might have thought it did. And I don't think anyone today would want 538 strangers whom they don't know deciding for them who should mm-hmm. be president. You know, this is a country in which 140 plus or million people vote. 538 people making that decision for them is just not something anyone could imagine would happen in 2020. Yeah, it's wild. Um, before we move uh, forward a little bit, you know, from the framing, I do want to thank you for introducing me to who is now my new founding uh, favorite founding father in James Wilson. His story was absolutely fascinating. It was, Isn't it, was, it a great story? Yeah, <laughs> you, and you don't, you're right, you don't hear about him, obviously, because of what happened to him towards the end of his life. But wow, I want a whole book on, on him. That was that was wild. So, so do I. He's a, you know he's a fascinating character, and all the more so because we don't know him. Yeah. Uh, in fact, he was probably the most important framer at the convention, mm-hmm. save possibly for James Madison, who we all know is the father of the Constitution, mm-hmm. and whose notes uh, from that convention are really the most comprehensive record we have of what went on there in Philadelphia that summer. James Wilson was a, an immigrant from Scotland. He came over to the to, to, to what became the United States. He came over to the colonies in 1765 as a 23-year-old, just packed with knowledge and ambition and excitement, and he got right into the middle of the pre-revolutionary politics. He writes an essay uh, in the, the late 1760s uh, in, in which he argues that Britain has no uh, l- legitimate uh, the Parliament, British Parliament has no legitimate legal authority over the colonies at all. And this was really like a sort of a touchstone for uh, the, the, the revolution. He became a sort of a, a leading intellectual thinker of the revolution. And in fact when you look at that essay now, you find um, pretty much, uh, almost word for word, the language that uh, we now know better uh, as the um, most famous lines of the Declaration of Independence, which was drafted, of course, by Thomas Jefferson. Mm-hmm. And that is the, the lines that begin, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. These ideas, I mean, it's not that Thomas Jefferson had never heard these ideas before, but James Wilson sort of articulated them better than anybody else. Mm-hmm. And he had essentially written those lines in his essay that Thomas Jefferson, we know, copied passages from in his own uh, notebooks. So Jefferson was, I think, you know, really channeling James Wilson when he wrote what are, are, you know, our most important founding words and our most important founding ideals. And I think what makes James Wilson such an interesting character is not just that he provided those ideals, but that he kind of, he could see what America should be, the sort of the modern democratic notion of America far more than any of the other framers did at the convention. He really saw an equal, uh, you know, expansive, inclusive democracy where everybody voted, everybody counted the same, obviously, you know, according to the terms of the time, which was not slaves and not women, mm-hmm. um, you know, so we have to make exceptions for, for that. But but he, but just even even given that, his, his understanding of what a democracy should be was so much further ahead of all the other framers. And I think it, it, it's worthwhile to go back and think about how he saw things then uh, to inform us today. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and you're right, those uh, passages, um, it was wild to see them back to back, what he wrote and what uh, Jefferson used. And um, it, it was just amazing. So let's um, kind of, I'd like to hear your viewpoint on what is it that's, um, what are the problems with the Electoral College? What uh why, why, um, why do you, I guess, why do you write this book? Why, 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 why do we, you know, why should we challenge this idea? So I think I can put the problems into two basic, uh, baskets. Nice. One is the principles and the other is the practicality. Mm. So let's talk just the principles first. 
right? The Electoral College violates what I would consider the two fundamental principles of any democracy, of any modern Republican government, uh, which are political equality, which is, I think we would say today, one person, one vote, right? Mm -hmm. That's the idea that everybody gets a vote and every vote matters the same. And then the other ideal is majority rule. And that's the idea that the person who wins the most votes wins, right? So the Electoral College violates both of these principles Mm -hmm. because all votes don't count the same under the Electoral College. Votes in certain states count for more than other states. And the person who wins the most votes doesn't necessarily win, as we've seen now twice in our lifetimes and has happened five times overall in the nation's history Mm -hmm. and nearly happened several more times beyond that. That's the principle, right? I just think that is why there have been more than 700 attempts to amend or abolish the Electoral College over American history. This is far more than for any other provision of the Constitution. And that's because I think people understand how it violates those basic ideals of a democratic society. But then you get into the practicality. It's easy enough to just talk about principles in the abstract. Mm -hmm. Practically, what does it do? It doesn't just make the loser the winner, as it did in 2016. Even when the candidate who wins the most votes in the country wins the Electoral College as well, the Electoral College has a very pernicious effect on our government and on our politics and on our society. And that's because of what's called the winner-to-take-all rule. And this Mm -hmm. is the rule that 48 of the 50 states now use uh, to award their electors. It works exactly as it sounds. They give all of their electors to the winner of the most votes in their state. So it doesn't matter if the person who won the most votes gets one more vote than his or her opponent or 10 more votes or a thousand or a million. They get all of the electors. Okay. Again, as I said at the beginning, this is not in the Constitution. The winner-take-all rule is purely an invention of the states. They they started doing it in the early 1800s when they realized that it would give them more political clout in the election to be able to say to one candidate or the other, hey – we're going to give all our electors to you when we, you know, when we cast our, our votes. So when that happens, when you have a winner-take-all rule, what you end up with are two kinds of states, mm-hmm. state, what we call safe states and what we call battleground states. Safe states, you know, are states like California, New York, Texas, uh, you know, Mississippi, states where one party or the other very clearly has enough of a lead uh, that, that they are going to win that state. Um, and, and so the candidates do not compete in those states because it's not worth it. When, when it's winner take all, there's no point in trying to, you know, get a few extra votes in those states because you're not going to win the state. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you, going from zero electors to zero electors, you, why, why spend all that money to get no electors? Then there are the battleground states. And those are the small handful of states every four years where the outcome is uncertain in advance. And that is where the the presidential candidates spend all of their time and their money and their attention and their interest is in the voters in those states, states like Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. This year it includes Arizona, Florida, um, and I think North Carolina is probably on that list too. Mm -hmm. We're talking half a dozen states, 44 states, and more than 80% of the American public is, is essentially irrelevant to the outcome of the presidential Clint, election. Clint, Their you votes and I. don't matter, right? Yep. And the battleground states, the 20% or fewer of the people who live in the battleground states are the only ones who matter. And that has a really detrimental effect on representative democracy because it means that the person who's running for the job that has to cover the entire country and treat everybody equally is actually only caring about a tiny sliver of that country. Mm-hmm. And that just that does great damage to the way representative democracy works. Absolutely. And that's um, 
one of the uh, um, my my favorite uh, parts of your books are when you're dispelling myths, and that is one of the myths that the uh, electoral college forces candidates and campaigns to do it all over the country. That is not the case, and I mean, how many how frustrating it is for so many people throughout the country just to kind of be a spectator right. and watching exactly. it all kind of take place. But uh, one myth in particular it comes up a lot when I, you know, when I'm bringing it up around people or. Um, you know, just as I see out there uh, in the media and the news is that the Electoral College uh, uh, protects smaller and uh, more rural states. And uh, you argue in your book that this is not the case. Yeah, not even close. Uh, You know, one of the things I hope this book can do um, is really provide people with some information and ammunition to use when they get into these debates Mm -hmm. with friends or colleagues or uh, you know, family members, um, because so many of the discussions and debates we have about the Electoral College are fairly uh, ill-informed. And I think people come to them with a lot of pre-existing notions that are just just wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is one of them. It's one of the most common ones, the one you just named, which yep. is uh, the idea that the small states uh, are protected somehow by the Electoral College. It's just a flat-out misunderstanding of how the college works. In fact, small states are in the same basket as big states and medium states, uh, and all other sized states, uh, uh, which is that they are, for the most part, safe states. They, in six, there's, let's say there's about 13 small states, meaning states with three or four electors. That's the fewest number of electors you can have is three. Um, among those 13 states, six of them uh, are reliably uh, Democratic, vote mm-hmm. reliably in favor of the Democrats, six vote for the Republican, and one, New Hampshire, is a swing state, a true swing state, where you just don't know how it's going to come out. Mm -hmm. New Hampshire gets more attention from both political Mm -hmm. parties in election years than all the other 12 small states combined. So this idea that small states are somehow being protected by the Constitution, on the contrary, they're completely ignored by the Electoral College. There is, you know, just like California and New York are ignored by the Electoral College. So if we want to talk about how do you bring in um, Americans from all over the country in all different size states, you really have to be talking about a national popular vote. And that's because in a popular vote election, candidates go everywhere because they know they need to win votes everywhere in order to get the most votes of all. They'll travel to all different parts of the country to win votes. And they'll be in cities and they'll be in rural areas and they'll be in suburbs and they'll be in small towns. This is how it happens. This is how campaigning happens. You can see it happen on the gubernatorial, on the gubernatorial level mm-hmm. in governor's races in the states. They go all over the state because even if they know they're not going to win a place outright, they, they want to lose by less. Right? And when you add, all, add it all together, you hope you get the most votes in the country. I think that's a much healthier way to elect the leader of a uh, you know, large democracy than the way we do it today. Couldn't agree more. Um so you mentioned earlier in passing that, you know, there's been 700 attempts to change this, which is which is wild. And there was one in particular in the 60s that came super close. And there's a great story about that in the book. But it has um, weathered this storm and it, it, it's still with us. And, you know, we've seen it, like we mentioned, uh, you know, affect things in a profound way just recently, you know, choosing the president um, against popular vote. But uh, there is a solutions offered in your book. And, and that leads us right to the discussion of the national popular vote. Um, interstate compact. And uh, I was wondering if you could tell us about that. Sure. Um, 
that 1960s, late 1960s story, by the way, is and it really an astonishing one. I had no idea I had that it had happened. Zero. And I think many people who even lived through it and were adults at the uh-huh. time didn't remember it either when I asked them. And it's really the closest we've ever come uh, by a long shot to abolishing the college and replacing it with popular vote. It so came down to a filibuster. <laughs> just a filibuster. Yeah, it, yeah. it came down to a Senate filibuster Crazy. that locked it. Yeah. Um, uh, it's worth reading that. Uh, I, I encourage people just to read Chapter 5 of the book for that story. It's <laughs> yep. a really astonishing Maybe. story. But, you know, the fact that we came that close and still failed 50 years ago, I think, is evidence that it is very hard to get a constitutional amendment uh, passed under any circumstances. What was interesting about that time was that it was not a particularly partisan issue at the time. Mm -hmm. It didn't have the same quality of partisan, uh, you know, um, division as we do today, right? Because twice in the last 20 years, the Republican has won the Electoral College and lost the popular vote. People really think of this as a Democratic-Republican sticking point. And it really has never been that until the last 20 years. Um, You know, as you know, as you can read in the book, the reason it fell apart in the '60s wasn't because of Democrats and Republicans. It was it was on it was for other reasons. The the, the national popular vote interstate compact that you mentioned uh, is a different way of getting to a popular vote. It is actually not abolishing the electoral college. It is using the electoral college as it is designed in the Constitution to achieve a popular vote for president. Now, people are going to say, "Wait a minute." I thought, you know, how does that work? How can you use a system that was designed to do something different, uh, you know, for, for, for this completely alternative purpose? It's actually a really interesting and elegant uh, idea. So it was developed about 15 years ago by a man named John Koza. He's mm-hmm. a computer scientist who lives in uh, California. And he figured out that given, you know, he, he took this fact that I've mentioned now a few times, which is that states have total authority to decide for themselves how they want to award their electors. Right now, 48 out of 50 states, every state but Nebraska and Maine, give their electors all to the winner of their statewide vote. Mm-hmm. So John Koza said, well, what if states decided instead to give their electors to the winner of the national popular vote? And on top of that, what if states entered into an agreement by which they would all agree to give their electors to the winner of the national popular vote once enough states join together to equal a majority of electors in the country. Now, if you follow the logic there, you see that what it leads to inevitably is that the candidate who wins the most votes in the country would win the presidency every time. And that would force candidates to campaign in the way that I was just talking about, which is to go all over the country and to appeal to all Americans and to come up with proposals and policies that actually appeal to everybody, or at least to a majority, rather than just these slivers of the population that care about, say, um, you know, fracking or, you know, the Mm -hmm. auto industry or, you know, uh, you know, prescription drug prices. You know, these are these these issues matter, but they don't matter any more than any other issues. And in fact, in many cases, they are matter only to a very small minority of people. So so the idea behind the compact is it's basically a contract among the states. They, They enter into this agreement and they all say, We will award all of our electors to the winner of the national popular vote when states representing a majority of electors, 270, have joined. Right now, 15 states and the District of Columbia have joined this compact. They equal a total of 196 electoral votes. So they're 74 votes away from it taking effect. Uh, Virginia is right on the edge um, of passing it. So if Virginia joins, then you have 209. um, And so then you're only 61 away. I do think it, that those last 60 or 70 are going to be a pretty heavy lift mm-hmm. for various reasons. Yeah. But it's a really elegant solution because it is, as I say, using the Electoral College, not abolishing it. It is using the college in the way it was designed by the framers, which is to say 
to let states decide for themselves how they want to award their electors. Yeah. I think it's absolutely brilliant. And that, that I got to admit, that gave me a lot of hope. I didn't realize that many states had signed on to it and, you know, that there were that few votes, even though it is such an uphill climb. Um, do you I mean, do you, do you think it could happen? I mean, obviously, so many people, uh, they you know, the they, evil, you know, is almost better than, you know, what you don't. Uh, that that is definitely uh, that is definitely a, a driving uh, force behind the defense of the college, the mm-hmm. sort of inertia defense, right? Yeah. Um, and and that's one of the reasons I wrote the last chapter of the book, which is you know what would a pop, what would a popular vote look like? What would it unleash on our country? Right. Mm-hmm. A lot of people say, okay, I agree with you. The electoral college is uh, you know it functions badly and it harms our country, but a popular vote would be even worse. So I said, all right, well. Why don't we ask that question of the people who actually spend their lives doing this work, which is campaigning around mm-hmm. the country? So I interviewed campaign managers and field directors and ground game coordinators of, of both Republican and, and Democratic presidential campaigns for the last 20 years. And I said to them, how did you run your campaign to win the Electoral College? And what would you have done differently if you had to win a national popular vote? And almost to a person they all said they would prefer to run a national popular vote campaign because they see how corrosive it is to have to run just in Ohio or just in Florida Mm -hmm. or just in Michigan or wherever it is that, you know, you need to get those few extra Mm -hmm. votes to become president. Remember, Donald Trump, that winner-take-all rule is what made Donald Trump president because he won the combined, uh, he won Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania by a combined total of 77,000 votes. Mm -hmm. And he won the entire country and the presidency based on that. 130, 140 million people vote, and Donald Trump wins because of 77,000 votes in three states. So I think that that's that's such a harmful way to run a democracy. And so the the solution here is the is the uh, interstate compact uh, right now, anyway, because I think an amendment is going to be harder, harder, harder lift. But the, the compact basically says we can get to a popular vote without touching the Constitution. Mm-hmm. This is actually a, a, a bipartisan effort. There are a lot of conservatives uh, on, on board with this that are trying to sell the idea to conservative lawmakers. And then yeah. there are liberals who are selling it to Democratic mm-hmm. lawmakers. And they have different arguments, right? Obviously, uh, Republicans are concerned about different things than Democrats are concerned about. So you, you sort of tailor the arguments. But this, is a, this has a very bipartisan appeal. You know, if you question that... Look at what Donald Trump uh, tweeted on election night of 2012. He tweeted, the Electoral oh, yeah. College is a disaster mm-hmm. for democracy. Mm-hmm. Right? Why did, why did he tweet that? There's because tweet. It, looked, it looked briefly like Mitt Romney was going to win the popular vote mm-hmm. and lose the Electoral College. And Donald Trump suddenly saw the unfairness of yep. it, right? Just the, <laughs> just the hint that that might happen made him furious. And I say, amen. You know, yes. like, I totally know how you feel, man. It's weird. So, I agree so with Donald and, Trump. Yeah. Anybody, <laughs> that, that moment. anybody who, who would suffer... Um, at this unfairness, I think, sees immediately how unfair it is. And I think that's why I think you can really start to convince people of uh, that this isn't a partisan thing. This is this is really about a, a fuller and more representative democracy. I love it. Um, to bring this all home, um, towards the end, you speak of some benefits that would happen. Like, what would it, what would it look like? What what good comes of it if we're, we have the popular vote um, in effect? So... I mean, one of them most obviously is just legitimacy, right? Yeah. You know, it is it is very hard for somebody who uh, in a in a uh, modern democracy who, who has not won uh, a majority of the vote to be seen as legitimate in the eyes of millions of people. George W. Bush had mm-hmm. that problem. And I think, you know, Donald Trump clearly has that problem, uh, you know, putting aside his own, you know, his own style and his own uh, policies. Just the fact that he comes into office losing by three million popular votes is very, very 
uh, crippling to his legitimacy, and sure. that is not a healthy thing for the for the broader health of the democracy. Mm-hmm. But then you also have, I think, really um, potentially very positive effects on how politics happens in America. You know, we think constantly about how polarized we are. I actually think. You know, we're, at, we're not as polarized as we seem, and part of it is right. that the Electoral College makes it appear that way with the red and blue map that we mm-hmm. see every four years, right? We think of states as red states or blue states. Of course, there are no red states or blue states. There are purple states, yeah. right? There are Democrats and Republicans live everywhere. California, four and a half million Californians voted for Donald Trump in 2016. Not a single one of them counted when the electors cast their ballots because of the winner-take-all rule, right? All mm-hmm. 55 of California's electors went to Hillary Clinton, even though four and a half million people didn't want her as president in that state. Same thing happens in Texas in reverse, right? So I just think if you can take away that that distorting effect, you start to see that, oh, people everywhere are, you know, um, I think more, uh, I want to call it moderate exactly, mm-hmm. but the country is, it's as a whole, is a purple country. It is a, it is one big battleground state, and the, and the candidates have to treat it that way, and when they treat it that way, I think then they start to come up with policies and proposals and um, laws that actually appeal more broadly to more Americans. And then I think you get, you know, you actually get a government that is working on behalf of what most Americans want rather than on special interests and, you know, narrow slices of the electorate in places that are electorally uh, significant. Yeah, absolutely. One more uh, thing. And you pointed out very plainly in your book, uh, more people are going to vote. If your vote matters, oh, you're going out there. Thank you, thank you for thank you for pointing out uh, one of the most obvious. I, I, I overlooked that one. Right. Turnout turnout would go up, and that is not a theory; that is a fact. Yep. When we look at turnout in swing states right now, the states where your vote actually can matter and could actually swing the state, it is significantly turnout is significantly higher in the swing states than it is in the safe states, and that's for an obvious reason, which is that people come out to vote when they know their vote counts. If they know their vote doesn't count they're not going to be as likely to come out. So if you spread that effect all over the country instead of just the six or so swing states that Mm -hmm. we see, you could be talking 15, 20 million more voters at least, possibly more than that. That is a good thing for democracy. I think when more people are involved, you have a healthier representative democracy. Such a good thing for democracy. And I think this book is a good thing for democracy. Honestly, it means a lot to me personally. This is something I've talked about with people many times. And this now I have this... uh, Bible, this tool to um, you know go to for, for it's incredibly researched and it just um, it just gave me a lot of hope and it's I think it's incredible. So th- thank you for taking the time oh, to explain some of these thanks. theories and, and go over it with me. Thanks for having me on. I'm really uh, really appreciate the t- conversation. Absolutely. Thanks again, Jesse. This podcast is in the loop, the legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com.